Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. This episode is brought to you by Progressive, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Plus, auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Quote now at Progressive.com to see if you could save. Progressive Casualty Insurance and Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Amy, let me ask you a question. How many remotes do you have in your house to work your TV? Way too many. Yeah. Too many. So get your TV red carpet ready with the Control Center by Cavo. You can clean up your whole remote clutter for good with one universal remote that does it all. Just say what you want to watch, and the Control Center will take you straight there. Doesn't that sound great? That sounds amazing. I love it. Shop now just in time for the Oscars and get 40% off the Control Center with the promo code Unspooled. That's U-N-S-P-O-O-L-E-D. Control Center is available at Cavo, C-A-A-V-O.com and Best Buy. People, when you support our products, you support the show. And this is a product that will help you even watch more stuff. For all the people out there who's like, well, where can I find, uh, you know, uh, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest? Just tell Cavo Control Center and they'll take you right there. Control Center by Cavo, one remote that does it all. One ring. One remote. The year is 2018, and $5.8 billion will either build you a wall along America's southern border, or it will be the total American box office of the top 20 films of the year. Because these are the blockbusters. I'm Amy Nicholson. And I'm Paul Shear. And welcome to Unspooled. Unspooled. This is a very special episode of Unspooled. We're breaking from our traditional format to talk about the blockbusters of 2018 uh, and maybe where they fall on the AFI list in the future. But before we do that, we wanted to talk to you a little bit about last week's episode, which was One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Now, Amy, you and I failed our musical test in the Cuckoo's Nest. Did you know that? I did. I wasn't sure if that song, if the sound in the very beginning was a theremin or not. That was my guess. And it was not. It is a musical saw. Many of the people out there knew that it was a musical saw. Well done, ear people. And I even saw the person who <laughs> composed that song holding a musical saw. Like he posed with his own musical saw. He didn't tweet at us, but someone showed a picture of him. And you I know, guess we have to learn how to play the musical saw. I like, like the an musical apology saw. for not knowing that it was a musical saw. <laughs> we should I have do. them, if anyone can play the musical saw, maybe you could uh, make our theme song into a musical saw version. I would like that. <laughs> Or a theremin. Ooh, I do that. You know, people have talked a lot about the 
opening music a lot. And, you know, I think the idea that the drum beat is the drum beat of Mother Earth and the musical saw was the sounds of people crying out, you know, the emotion of the earth. And I thought that was an interesting interpretation of that opening music. I mean, I guess a saw cuts down a tree. Mm. Is that where we're going with this? I'll this say like rock, paper, scissors of opening scores. <laughs> I, I'll say yes. I just just to give the musical saw people their due. Uh, it's a powerful instrument that can not only cut down a tree, but also give you the sounds of of uh, discomfort. I know that a musical saw can't really cut down a tree. Um, Amy also. It can? I didn't know that. I mean, I'm assuming. I'm assuming someone's going to send us some sort of Wikipedia page. Um, excuse me, a musical saw cannot cut down a tree. <laughs> I mean, if it's a saw, eventually it can. It just might be slow. <laughs> just a really slow, slow burn. I guess any saw could be a musical saw, but the ones that you may buy in the store are probably not right for music, but depending on what store you go to. I don't know. Anyway, this is not a show about musical saws. All right. Well, Amy, we have a big plate of films to talk about this week. Uh, so let's get into it. Amy, the year is 2018. It will go down in history as the year that has a contentious Supreme Court hearing with Brett Kavanaugh. It also has a year where a blue wave takes over the United States, a government shutdown happens, wildfires overtake California, Meghan Markle marries into the royal family, the Me Too movement begins, Sears and Toys R Us went bankrupt, and Amazon is taking over, and it's a year where Black Panther is the number one grossing film in the continental United States of America. Oscar season is fast approaching. These movies that are deemed the best of the best are being rewarded, celebrated. Argued about. Argued about. And then in about a month, we will forget about all of these. And a new crop of films will come in. And then next year we'll do it all over again. And we're left with what actually kind of exists in our zeitgeist. What are the movies that stay around? You know, What shall rise from the ashes? You know, the Oscars aren't the best reflection of what makes a dent on popular culture. Yeah, the King's Speech. That, that really just sums up life on this planet for It's me. so <laughs> true, but around the time of the, the King's Speech, it was the biggest thing. And I do think that talking about the AFI list, and we definitely have kind of gotten into it about, you know, the lack of inclusion, especially from uh, female directors. I'm curious, like, what are the films in 2018 that maybe stand the test of time or are worthy of being on this list in the future? It's true. And that is such a big question that we have decided to break it up into several episodes over the next month, you know, kind of looking at the way films make it onto the AFI Top 100 list and then kind of breaking it apart into different categories. We're going to look at this through moneymakers. We're going to look at it through critical acclaim. And we're going to look at it through the things that we just love and they didn't get enough love and they should get enough love. And they finally, over time, made enough love that they made it on the list. Yeah. And I guess I was wondering of the AFI list, like what percentage or how many films were the most popular films of their year financially, I guess. Here's something really, really fascinating. When I was looking through all of the films that are on this top list, money matters. You know, like we try to be like, well, art is always what is more important. And that's probably what we'll be talking about next week when we go through like all of the critically acclaimed films of 2018. But money, money seriously matters to the AFI list. Like in a way I wasn't even expecting until I started combing through the numbers. Do you know how many movies on this list were the number one at the box office that year? There are 21 movies on the AFI list that were the number one film of their year. 
21, which is over a fifth. And you know what? That sounds huge, and it is huge. And the, the number one hits of the year, I mean, we want me to, I can run through them real fast? Yeah. All right. Here, this is roughly roughly in order, I think. City Lights, King Kong, Snow White and the Seven Doors, Gone with the Wind, Best Years of Our Lives, the movie okay. you cannot wait to see. I did not even know it existed. <laughs> Bridge Over the River Kwai, Ben-Hur, Lawrence of Arabia, Sound of Music, The Graduate, 2001, Butch Casting the Sundance Kid, The Godfather, Jaws, Rocky, Star Wars, Raiders, E.T., Toy Story, Titanic, Saving Private Ryan, all number one at the box office, all on the AFI list. That's a lot, but you know what's even bigger? Is then from there, I ran the numbers of how many films on the AFI top list were just from that year's top 20 films. Okay. And you know what that is? What? 83 movies. Wow. 83 of the movies on this list were from the top 20 of their used box office. That means like only 17 movies of the list were not hits. That is fascinating to me because oftentimes the big box office successes are the more mainstream populist films, the ones that, you know, kind of pop in and then pop out from your consciousness. Like, I love Fast and Furious. I don't think it belongs on the top list of 100 films. But according to this, there is a chance for the Fast and Furious to get on the next AFI list. Well, that's the thing. Like, if you're really, if you're putting the scales of justice down and, like, weighing movies and their chance of entering into heaven, now I'm, like, getting confused with the Sesame Street movie. They have, like, a scale and a feather and Big Bird and, like, the... Follow that bird? Uh, I think it's the one where, like, a little Egyptian uh, pharaoh maybe is, like, dead. I don't It's very dark. dark <laughs> Anyways, let's not do that. Let's not do dark that. Dark crystal? <laughs> but basically, if you have this scale in front of you and mm-hmm. you put, like, little weights down, um, and you put a weight down for every film that was a number one, and you put a weight down for every film that wasn't in the top 20, the number ones would have it. There are more number one films on this list than there are losers like Citizen Kane that didn't crack the top 20. Then this is a great conversation to kind of have because – We have the top 20 films of 2018 right now. Want to go through them just one by one, starting with number 20? Let's do it. Let's build our way back from the bottom to the top. I love it. This is a film that you are very closely associated to. The number 20 highest grossing film of the year, Halloween, the 2018 version. Uh, This is kind of a surprise to me that this movie did that well. I mean, I knew it was successful, but that's it made $159 million. That's great. I mean, slasher films don't usually make that kind of money. Yeah. Right? You, That's a massive. Number 19, Hotel Transylvania 3, Summer Vacation. Did you yeah. see Hotel Transylvania 3? I did not see Hotel Transylvania 3, but I know that Hotel Transylvania 3 is the one where, like, Dracula is on a cruise ship yes. and he, like, falls in love with Van Helsing's daughter. Yes. You're talking and about this as though you've seen... I've seen enough of it to understand that that is the plot. Uh, Dracula finally falls in love, but yet it's a trick. Amy, it's a trick. This guy cannot catch a break. And number 18, we have Mary Poppins Returns. Mary Poppins Returns, a huge hit that I don't know how you feel about it. I was underwhelmed with Mary Poppins Returns. My Mary Poppins Returns story is that I put it on over Christmas with some family, and the family lasted half an hour and said, we have to turn this off. That's where I was. I turned it off. And if a movie is not engaging me, especially on that level, and I watch a lot of films, you watch most of them with me, but I watch a lot of kids' films, too. It just, there's something about it that just didn't feel, just didn't pull me in. But we're wrong, because America said yes at $168 And now we're getting into something like Crazy Rich Asians. And this is a movie that I think we should... Talk about a little bit later. That comes in at 17, but that's, at this point, our first original film on the list. Yes, it was based on a book, but this is the first movie that is not a a reboot 
or a sequel. It is one of the only movies on this list that's not because then we have Spider-Man and the Spider-Verse, which right. is great in an original version of kind of a franchise film, but a franchise film. Right. At 15, we got another newbie. We got A Quiet Place. Fantastic. Horror film. And then we go to Ralph Breaks the Internet, another sequel. And then that leads us into A Star is Born, which is a reboot, remake. Uh, and then that goes into Bohemian Rhapsody. Boom. Another original. So that right now, we are at 12. Uh, and so far, only two of these films are original at this point. It's not going to get any better because then we got Venom. Okay. And then we got Star Wars. Well, hold on what? one second. <laughs> Let me ask you about Venom. Okay. Where does Venom fall for you? Because I was thinking about it. It's not part of the Marvel Universe. It's not technically a sequel. Doesn't involve any characters from other films that we have met. Is this an original film? Or is it a sequel, reboot, remake? I'm going to go with that because it's a character we know. It's a character we've seen before. Wasn't he in an earlier Spider-Man He was in a Sam Raimi Spider-Man. Yeah, he was in a Sam Raimi (sighs) Spider-Man. But it's a different character. I kind of feel like. You're really grasping for strong. I am. I am. Okay. Well, you know what? It's a spinoff. I'll say it's a spinoff. You're right. You're right. It's a (laughs) spinoff. Okay. Moving on. All right, number 10, we got Solo, A Star Wars Story. Which is amazing that this movie is number 10. It's one of the 10 biggest grossing films of the year, but unequivocally referred to as a failure. And has not come up in conversation since it came out. No, but isn't that crazy that we live in a world where a film domestically makes $213 million. It's in the top 10 highest grossing films of the year and is really viewed as... A complete miss. Growth capitalism, man. <laughs> I mean, we got to please those investors. Uh, then we go to Ant-Man and the Wasp at number nine, uh, which I'm actually really happy that that movie gets up there because I've always feel like the Ant-Man films, or uh, these two, are kind of like uh, in the shadows of the Marvel world. And I think they're fun, high quality uh, superhero films. They kind of take themselves, uh, you know, a little less seriously than the bigger Marvel films. And I love Paul Rudd and, uh, I'm excited to see it's up there, but yeah. surprised when I saw that. It's lovely. It's lovely. And uh, it, yeah, I, I like those films. I think they get the stakes right in the Marvel universe. It's not all about destroying the planet. Yes. Forevermore. I agree with that. Uh, at eight, we have Mission Impossible Fallout. Which I would say is definitely in the conversation for me as one of my favorite films of 2018. I don't know if I'm putting this on the list, but I love this movie. Like uh, to me, Christopher McQuarrie has figured out how to make these films so engaging, so dynamic, so much fun. They actually feel like the way I felt when I saw action films as a kid because it feels tangible and real. You know, there's an element of jackass in these movies because you know he's actually doing this. He's breaking his leg. He's jumping out of a plane. And there's something that doesn't feel green screened about it that makes it so much more engaging. And Tom Cruise is aging backwards. These movies are getting better and better and better. This is my new James Bond. Have you seen Fallout? Of course I've seen Fallout. You Do you not love it? Fallout. Well, I didn't know. It's great. It's great. I mean, to me, my favorite Mission Impossible is Mission Impossible 1, but this one is Wow, excellent. a purist. A purist. I a purist. Mission Impossible 1 has such, like, visual style. You got Brian De Palma. You have the most iconic stunt they've ever done, him dropping down on the wire. Oh, I would argue that at this point, that stunt has been... Oh, you're right, though. That is the iconic <laughs> shot. I mean, if you're going to say, like, a scary movie made fun of it, that's not fair. And you're proving my point. <laughs> All right. But Fallout was good. Fallout was better than, like, four... Where does it stack up to you in the James Bond world? 
It's better than all the James Bonds. Okay, there we go. Perfect. Yeah. Although I like Skyfall. I mean, look, I'm a big James Bond fan, so I'm not trying to shit on James Bond. I just think that they're doing it right. Uh, Dr. Seuss's The Grinch, uh, a remake, another remake. Coming in at number seven. Then at number six, we got Deadpool 2. Uh, then we got a number five, Aquaman. Uh, Aquaman, I have some strong feelings about Aquaman, and I think it can come into the conversation in the way of saying, very rarely, in a world like this, where we're talking about these top 20 films, do you get to see a film that's so unabashedly a director's pure vision? And love it or hate it, James Wan has created something so purely unique, and it feels to me, and this is no slight to James Wan at all, um, like a 12-year-old described what a perfect superhero movie would be, and he captured it perfectly. There is just an energy to it that's like, and then the octopus is going to play drums. Okay, the octopus playing drums is the best part of this movie. The scoreboard underwater, <laughs> him riding like a giant seahorse, Nicole Kidman with a trident. Amy, I could talk about this movie all day long. <laughs> I mean, if this movie was like an hour and a half of an octopus playing drums and then I got to go home, I would be down. I would say this. You could easily cut 40 minutes out of Aquaman and you would not miss it. But I was thoroughly engaged while watching this film. Uh, again, not for the list, just as a Paul Shear, not expecting anything great, don't like the DC universe I was like, I am in more of this. Whatever drugs you were when you saw this film, <laughs> I wish I had had some. I always say to people when I talk about this movie, and I was sober. I was stone cold <laughs> sober. Okay. I saw it in the middle of the afternoon. And then we go to number four, uh, Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom. Another sequel. Number three, we got Incredibles 2. Which I was cut out of. You can watch me in the deleted DVD scenes. Uh, I, I interrogate the scenes. Are you bitter about this? Are you... I might be. I might be holding this over Brad Bird's head. No, they were lovely to me, and it was such a thrill to get to record with Brad Bird and be there. And the fact that my animatic is on the, uh, the iTunes is all that I need. All right, and now we're at number two, a spot held by such fantastic films on our list as Forrest Gump. Tootsie, Wizard of Oz, Spartacus, all of these movies were number two. We were Windows Sixth Sense, Lord of the Rings. And this year's number two was Avengers Infinity War. Exactly. The biggest, the best Marvel film of all time. I feel like we're going to get into this one in a little bit more detail in just a little bit. Let's just bring it home and go that our number one film, also a Marvel film, the 18th edition uh, or 18th chapter in the Marvel Universe, Black Panther, coming in at 700 million domestic dollars. This movie is so successful that right now in theaters, they're showing it for free. They're doing free screenings in real movie theaters. That's how much money that movie has made. And I do want to point out one thing, because we will talk at length about Black Panther, I'm sure. The difference between the top three, Black Panther, Avengers, Affinity War, and Incredibles, is about 200 hundred million dollars. So we go from Jurassic Park Fallen World at 417 million and then Incredibles 2 at 608 million. That's like so that's a giant jump. These are not close. Like the top 3 are in a league of their own. It's true. And you know what? I just realized I screwed up and Forrest Gump was actually the number 1 grossing film of that year. So that's another number 1 grosser we have. Wow. That makes 22 number one grocers. That means Black Panther is the one we have to look at the most seriously. On this list, after you have challenged me on my Venom uh, thoughts, there are only 
two original films in this top 22. Is that a sad state of affairs? I think it's a very sad state of affairs. I mean, I don't think that it's immediately disqualifying. Because we do have on the list Godfather 2, a sequel, Mm -hmm. has made it on. You could make an argument that like Ben-Hur was itself sort of a continuation of a franchise. Um, Wizard of Oz, also part of a franchise. You know, a lot of the films we've been talking about well, so far. But Wizard of Oz was of, at least the first of a franchise. Star Wars, first of the franchise. Ra- Raiders, first of a franchise. Like So, well, Wizard of Oz, they had been, they'd done like silent versions of like Wizard okay. of Oz stories before. So it wasn't like the first of a Wizard of Oz. I think it's a little bit of an asterisk, that and Ben-Hur, because that was like still when silent films were out where they're like, we should redo this because now we've actually figured out how to make movies now. Yeah, but what I'm saying is it's not immediately disqualifying that, you know, a touchstone film, beloved by many, they already know the story, they already know the characters, they're going to want to go see it. But is it upsetting for us as a culture that we're not letting enough new stuff get into this world? I mean, are we shutting down the super bads? And I don't know why I'm going to super bad right now or or bridesmaids. I know I'm jumping into comedies, but these films that are introducing us to new things that are allowing us to have a completely new experience because we're doing a lot more of the Olive Garden version of film. It's like, I remember hearing this conversation that like all these restaurants pop up all around the country because people find it familiar. It's like, instead of going to the Italian place in the small town, you go to Olive Garden because you know what you're getting. In a way, A Quiet Place and Crazy Rich Asians are truly the biggest achievement on this list. Well, I mean, what's interesting is, like, the shift that you're talking about, which I think is a, a huge problem. You know, I think we, it starts to happen in, like, 1999. The okay. shift where, like, the most popular thing of the year is kind of boring. Right. It, that doesn't really happen up until that point. I mean, when you look at, like, the number one hits of the 80s and stuff, you have, like, Top Gun and Back to the Future and Rain Man and Batman and, like, Home Alone. You know, you don't really get these repetitive, like, the eighth version of a Star Wars, like being at the top of the box office until 1999. Okay. Because that's when the very first Star Wars reboot comes out. And from that moment on, like the box office is basically garbage at the number one spot. It's either like, I mean, garbage is harsh, but it's like, it's going to be a Spider-Man. It's going to be a Star Wars. It's going to be one of like five different things. Well, do you think it's because of escalating ticket prices? Because I know on Broadway, when I was a kid growing up, I grew up in New York City, and my dad and I would go see theater shows all the time because it was affordable and it was fun. And you didn't know what you were seeing. It's like, oh, a Neil Simon play or this. But they weren't just like reboots of classic musicals, nor were they, you know, like sort of a version of a film that was now put on stage. It was just original playwrights and original musicals. And now I feel like because ticket prices on Broadway are so high, ticket prices at the movie theater are so high, that you only go when you know that there will be quality attached. There's less of a chance that you would want to take because you are spending, you know, if you're going as a family, you know, say you're going as a family of four, I mean, that's almost $100, you know, in and out. You're paying like, what, $15 a ticket plus popcorn plus parking, you know, like all this sort of stuff. It really gets up there. I mean, I think a lot of what's happening is that we have been convinced very successfully that these films are the must-see talking points. You know, like, there's very few things, I think, that unify our culture anymore. You know, like, where you can be, like, everybody's like, Bruce Springsteen is the best. Right. That doesn't happen. But, like, everybody knows that, like, when Black Panther is coming out or Avengers is coming out or new Star Wars is coming out, your friends will want to talk to you about it. Right. And that you have to see it in order to be up with the conversation for at least this one week. And Black Panther is one of those films that I agree with you. Like, people are like, we have to go see this. But I feel like people's 
reasoning to go see that film was more than it's connected to the Marvel universe. And I think it's on the same level as crazy rich Asians. And that way it's like, it's about representation. It's about creating something that had never really been seen on a level like these two films put it on. And I think that that, I want to talk about that uh, as we go on too. like, this is a year where two giant films that we're going to be talking about black Panther and crazy rich Asians are representing something that has not really been represented in mainstream big box office culture. And, you know, Black Panther, I would want to put that on my list of original films. It's not technically, but it kind of is, too. It's a weird, it falls in this weird spot, you know. As a film critic, I'm actually really always very fascinated by blockbusters. Because I do feel like in the film critic world, there has historically been sort of a divide between, like, the monocle people who are like, only the most obscure black and white art house movies for me are, will ever be deemed serious art. And they are the only ones worthy of study. And I've always felt very inclined to thinking like we have to really seriously study our top box office hits. Right. Because a top box office film is the film that gathers the whole world together. And they say this. We all want to see this. We all yes. want to talk about it. It's really unifying. And to me, a film that successfully manages to tap into that, to make a family spend 100 bucks to go see this film – is absolutely worth serious examination. But where I think it's gotten strange and interesting in the last couple of years, I mean, starting with like Wonder Woman and a couple of films before that, is this idea that we are using the box office to validate where we want our culture to be going. Like, it's almost like voting. Do you know mm-hmm. what I mean? We're using ticket buying as voting to say, I vote for this because I want more of this and I want to show I care about this. Right. I want more films that tell stories about like female superheroes, about superheroes of color, about, you know, like, Asian people just having, like, lovely romances and fighting with their mothers-in-law and, like, having this full world of representation on film. We're voting for that with our money. And so that does make the box office interesting this year. But I also find it just such a strange concept in general. There are so few things that, as a culture, we all embrace. Everyone's got their apps and their shows, and they all are in their little worlds, and very rarely do we, as a culture, celebrate one thing. So... Is that a reason to be on the list? I mean, should it just be on the list because everyone has seen it? It, It's done its job. It's entertained everybody. I mean, then we'd have a list of all number one films for the last hundred years because then that would just prove like, well, no, that was the one that captured the imagination for that year. I guess what we're asking is to be on the AFI list. Is it a film that resonates more than what it was? Like, do we remember it a year later? Right. I mean, I kind of wrote down a list of questions I was going to be thinking about as we go through this list. You Mm -hmm. know, like, did a film change or affect the culture? You know, did it become a cultural touchstone for tons of people? You know, is it a film that is the best of its kind? You Mm -hmm. know, like, is it, did it introduce anything new? You know, does it stand alone by itself? And also, does it feel 2018? Like, is it a film that we could take out of this time capsule and be like, yes. You represent this year in good and bad, a can year I, that's like very hard and difficult. Could I, you also say, can you take it out of this year and it's still good for any time that you would see it? And if you see it in 20 years, will it still be as relevant as it was this year? And I think exactly. that, that that is something that I feel like we often are coming up against. The films that I really love and respond to on this list are the films that feel timeless. They don't feel like they were created in the bubble. Pop, you're looking nice today. I like your sweater. You got Thank a good you. button up. Yes. You look pretty good, but I bet you'd look better in a tux. Everyone looks better in a tux, Amy. I say this all the time. Women 
are at the height of fashion. They get to get the nice dresses. They get to uh, get the the fashion statements. A lot of the times, us guys who don't spend a lot of time in, uh, I don't know, the uh, the the places where you get the fashionable stuff, where you get the malls, the, the stores, the haberdasheries. If you don't have time for that, this is where Black Tux comes in. Black Tux is a place that will send you a suit or tuxedo that would normally be too wildly expensive for you to even afford and that you might only wear once to your house that you can rent it and wear it once. I know what you're thinking. Rented tux? Let me tell you this. This is the highest quality rented tux you can get. And you know why? Because they actually are getting brand names that you know, that you recognize. And here's the thing. I'm going to tell you. A lot of times I wear suits once or twice, or maybe I'm going to a funeral and I only have like a wedding suit. Guess what? I'm wearing that wedding suit or I'm wearing the funeral suit at the wedding. I don't know what I'm doing. I have to have options and I don't have a disposable income to get suits. What am I, uh, uh, The Rock? I, I can't do it. Everyone looks better in a tux and that's something that Black Tux knows. But Black Tux also knows that you can't afford to buy a tux or even, you know, a fancy suit for every new occasion. I mean, it's Christmas season. You go out once, people see that suit. You can't wear it again. This is where Black Tux comes in. You go to blacktux.com and they have an amazing selection of tuxes and suits that you can wear once and then send right back. It's basically the next level version of renting a tux. And here's a deal. I don't have time to go shopping all the time, and nor do I have the income to afford to have a closet full of suits that I can just swap out in any given way. Black Tux comes in, they let you give them the sizes, they send you the suit, you try it on. Does it fit? Does it look good? If it does, you say, great, you send it back, and then 14 days before your event, it arrives, you can make sure everything still fits good, Make sure you didn't gain any weight. By the way, right now I lost a lot of weight. Why? Because I'm dieting, no big deal. And a lot of my clothes don't fit me. Black tux, I was able to get a suit that actually fits me right now without having to buy a new one because maybe I'll put that weight back on. I don't know. But right now, black tux is affording me a chance to look good and not get into a big suit that I look like I'm swimming around in doing a David Byrne impression. Blacktux.com gives you everything that you need to look your best, okay? And if anything is less than perfect, they will send you a replacement right away. So you get that, try it on, feel good about yourself, look good when you're out, wear a different outfit every time people see you, they go, holy shit, that guy is successful. And then someone will want to partner with you in your life, okay? Or your wife or your other partner will be like, whoa, when did I date someone who looks this fucking good? Thanks to Black Tux, it's our little secret. No one knows what's in your closet, okay? No one knows that you rented this. It's not a shame, it's an embrace. Okay, you're taking care of yourself for once. God damn it, you need to take care of yourself. Returns are simple. Wear it, turn head, send it back three days after your event. Shipping is free both ways. Get $20 off your purchase. Visit blacktux.com. Enter the offer code unspooled. That's blacktux.com. Offer code unspooled. Fellas, think about it. How many suits do you have in that closet? Are you wearing the suit that you wore to the wedding to the funeral? Are you wearing the suit that you wore to the funeral to the wedding? Stop it. Stop it. Blacktux.com is there to make you look good. You're going to look like a million bucks, okay? That's blacktux.com, code unspooled for $20 off your purchase. Black Tux premium rental suits and tuxedos delivered to your door. Should we just, you know, take out our machetes and just slice and dice and cut this list down to size? 
and just take a, a handful of films off it. Films that, yes, we've already talked about that are successful, they're good, but they're not getting on the list. And and and, and correct me if I'll, I'll, run, I'll run through a couple and see if we can kind of pare down this list. I believe Hotel Transylvania 3 can easily yeah, that's pop off. off the list. You're gone. Um, I think that uh, Ralph Breaks the Internet can pop off this yeah, list. It's off. Um, I think Bohemian Rhapsody can pop off this list. Yeah, 100,000 bazillion percent. And I'm not, I'm not just saying that because of like the Brian Singer thing, although yeah. that is a factor. It's just not a good movie. Well, can it's we talk that, about like, this? This movie, it's not a good movie. Yeah. Everyone loves it. Like, it's winning awards. And it's, I pulled a clip from this movie. If this aired, like, on Lifetime, like, this is, I, here, listen. Are you high again? Well done, Columbo. You need to slow down, Fred. Oh, don't be such a bore. I'm here, aren't I? Are you? I don't care if you're shit-faced. As long as you can sing. No, John, I don't want to play it. Then I'm all for it. What's that supposed to mean? I'm tired of the bloody anthems. I want the energy in the clubs. The bodies. I want to make people move. You mean disco? Why not? Do you mind pissing off? This is a band discussion. Drum loops, synthesizers. Oh, well, can we so. make it stop? <laughs> <laughs> I didn't even know where to stop it. But yes, that is the lead up to Another One Bites the Dust. That's a crazy. I mean, this movie is winning awards. Can you just tell me? And I like Rami Malik. I have nothing against him. But are you going to tell me that that performance? of Freddie Mercury is better than Christian Bale as Dick Cheney. Not talking about vice, just performance to performance. You can, can you tell me that those are similar and that like he won the SAG award for this. I watched vice and I forgot that I was watching Christian Bale. Like you forget, like, like not that that should be the end all be all, but let's come on people. Like, I don't know what, what are we responding to in this movie? Do, is it just like rock of ages? We like those queen songs. So let's go see this fucking movie. Cause it's not like our kids seeing this movie. Do they like queen? I don't know what's going on here. Amy. I mean, you're so upset. Okay. Um, first, let me just say that I think rock of ages is better than this movie. So I think, I think Tom Cruise does a better job singing. I want to know what love is with Malin Ackerman in rock of ages than anything that happens in this movie. Not, and I would never put rock of ages on this list. I wouldn't even put it in my Tom Cruise book. I wouldn't even acknowledge it that highly in any of his performances. However, Tom Cruise makes a better rock star, I think, than Rami Malek, and Tom Cruise makes a terrible rock star. So let's just have that be said. Um, also, I'm bummed out by the existence of Bohemian Rhapsody just because I think we've been starting to go in really interesting areas with biopics. Yeah. Like, I don't know if you ever saw um, the James Brown biopic, Get On Up, with... Yeah, uh, great. Yeah, yeah with um, Chadwick Boseman. It's phenomenal. I mean, this is the sort of film that, like, I wish that biopic had taken off because it gets into, like the soul of James Brown without ever being literal. There are moments where young James Brown gets like beaten up, but is pulled to his feet by the power of his own music that he hasn't even created yet because he will go on to create it. Yeah. It's like an astonishing performance. It's exciting and weird and strange and brilliant and creative. And we're doing stuff like that. And then the movie, this straightforward becomes a hit. It's not where I want us to be going with like rock biopics at all. Um, I think we should take solo a star Wars story off the list. Yes. It's absolutely lesser star Wars. It's lesser everything. We already have a star Wars on the list. Why would we ever need another star Wars? Yes. I were taking Jurassic world fallen kingdom off because if Jurassic world, if Jurassic Park is not on this list, hell yeah. no is a win with Chris Pratt on the list. Absolutely. I'm going to also just jump in and maybe you want to talk about it, but 
I think Incredibles 2 can pop off this list. I, I think Incredibles 1, we could have that conversation a different day, but Incredibles 2, while great, while enjoyable, while I was cut from it, uh, <laughs> no, I just feel like we should go back to Incredibles 1 if that would be the conversation I would have about yeah, that. Incredibles thing. 2 is gone, although I do want to say one interesting thing about it, which is if we're talking about a film that at least tries to feel 2018. Right. I don't think Incredibles 2 does this well, but it does try to get into feminism, sort of. Yes. It stumbles into it, trying to talk about Elastigirl and, like, women working outside of the home. It's actually a film that feels more like, actually, now that I'm talking, it's, like, more 1988 than 2018, but it's Very working girl, yeah. But anyways, Incredibles 2, you're gone. Yes. Uh, Aquaman, uh, I've talked about it off the list, though, because that is not answering any of those questions, nor do I think it should be. I think that's a fun film. Uh, Deb- also, nothing with a performance like Amber Heard's and Aquaman can be on the violence. <laughs> I mean, God bless her. She's not bad in other things, but whatever they did to her in that movie, she's not present. Uh, there's a couple of things that I, I'm not disagreeing with you at all about. Um, Deadpool 2, off the list, right? Yeah, Deadpool 2 off the list. It's fine. Fine. Yeah, I think Zazie Beetz is going to be a real star. She's great. I did a movie with her this year uh, with Chance the Rapper. It came out uh, this year, the year of uh, her kind of giant coming out in a way. Uh, uh, and she is a, a very talented, great uh, actress. And I'm very excited to see what this uh, Joker movie is going to be with her oh, and yeah. Joaquin and Todd Phillips. Uh, but yes, big fan. Yeah. And I just got back from Sundance where I saw a movie called Wounds with um, Army Hammer. And Army mm. Hammer plays a guy who's like living with Dakota Johnson but has a huge crush on Zazie Beetz. Uh-huh. That makes it sound like a romantic comedy. It's actually like an incredibly fucked up movie with like cockroaches coming out of all the corners. Oh. But she's terrific in it. I thought you were going to say out of their mouths. Uh, yes. Whoa. Um, Grinch, no uh, need. I know. I actually didn't even remember that movie existed. Mission Impossible. Obviously, we're going to knock that off the list. We talked about it a little bit, but I love Christopher McQuarrie. I love listening to him talk about film. I like the way he talks about character. I think from way of the gun to this, he's always making interesting choices. But I thought the way he approaches a blockbuster was very interesting because it felt honest to me. And take a listen to this clip of him talking about how he writes a blockbuster. Well, you know, we knew we wanted to have a car chase in Paris, a helicopter chase in New Zealand. We knew we wanted to have a foot chase in London. And so I just tell my location guys, just take me to a place that looks good. Take me to a place that's, that, that I haven't seen before. Uh, and we let the environment tell us. So we were standing on a rooftop, for example, uh, the same roof where Tom broke his ankle. And you could see St. Paul's Cathedral in one direction. You could see the Tate Modern in another direction. You could see Blackfriars Bridge in between them. And we knew right away, this is where our foot chase is gonna start. This is where it's gonna end. He's gonna run across that bridge. And we just let the environment tell us what what parts of the environment invite action. And I just love that idea because I guess the original script of Fallout was like 20 pages and they would just write to it. And I think that that's why the action feels kind of seamless. It feels like, yeah, we know what we're doing. We're making an action movie. So let's build it into the world instead of trying to force a movie. You know, it's like, I, I don't know. There's something a very organic way that his films work, or at least I feel like Mission Impossible Fallout definitely felt that way, and the one before it as well. I mean, I do wish, though, that, like, Tom Cruise would get a restraining order from Christopher McQuarrie. Really? I do, because, I mean, since the meltdown that I don't believe is really a meltdown, since the Oprah Couch thing. Which, when you watch it now, is so benign. Oh, It's benign. Oh, it's totally benign. Did you you know I wrote, like, a 5,000-word, like, expose on that moment? No. Oh, yeah. Well, here, in, right. in short. Put it in the notes. I want to read it. Yeah. In short, I'll just say he never actually jumps on the couch. He right. stands on the couch and gets off the couch. He gets on and off, 
which I find interesting because I bet if you're thinking about it right now, you're like, no, I can picture him jumping, bouncing on it. Does not happen. He gets on it. He gets off of it. And before he does that, Oprah Winfrey says to him, I saw you the other night. You were at this fundraiser. You were having the best time. I was so excited. And when I looked over to see you, you were standing on your chair. She tells him, I saw you. You were standing on your chair. It made me happy. So when he tries to please her later on, he stands on the couch, which is the closest thing he has to a chair. Whole moment's completely overblown. I'm interested in it really just as like an example of complete shared delusion I, of memory, just getting it completely off. I totally agree. When you rewatch it, you'll be surprised. I mean, if you want to watch Tom Cruise in an interesting moment, watch him on the red carpet when that kid sprayed him with a water gun. And watch him with Matt Lauer. Those are tense moments. Those are moments that live up to the hype. That one is fine. It just feels a little bit like bullshit Hollywood. Like, I'm in love. It doesn't feel crazy. It's true. But what I do think happened is that, like, he was told he was box office poison after that, which was not true. Because the movie he made right after The Couch, right after Matt Lauer, that movie was um, War of the Worlds, which was his biggest hit ever. Ever. But we view it as we view a, it as a failure. The and, Han Solo issue. Yeah, and then when he came back, I think he was so spooked by this like public disaster image that he basically went from being a director who worked with everybody, everybody interesting. He was like very director first and hungry yeah. to only working with McCoy. And now he and McCoy just sort of like have built this world, small world. And mm. I want Tom Cruise to push himself again and work with somebody else. That is I hear my that. long monologue. I hear that. And, and why I, I was so sad that he's making more Mission Impossibles with Christopher McQuarrie. I have a real love for Christopher McQuarrie. I don't know why. I just I, I, I like the way he talks. Um, You're right. allowed to love him. I just want Tom Cruise to be making more Magnolias. So for that oh, alone, on absolutely. principle, Mission Impossible is off my list. All right. I know they have a connection to it, but Halloween, the 2018 version, does this go on the list, off the list? It's gone. But like The Incredibles, I do think it's an interesting world in that they were very much trying to tie this to me too. One of the things you listed at the very beginning of this film is like defining 2018 like what i have found really interesting as an interviewer like reading interviews with people making a lot of films most of the ones that are not on this list they're all saying kind of a similar thing a lot of people lately are making films about trauma right and i mean halloween is the most trauma movie i think out of everything on this list i I really did like the idea of bringing laurie strode back as somebody facing her demons facing like the serial killer who's stalking her life, a movie that tried to take away some of like the horror mythology around Michael Myers and turn him back into a human being. Yeah. I liked that it, that it was a movie about podcasters getting killed because maybe, maybe we do deserve it. I don't know. Um, <laughs> no, we don't, Amy. <laughs> we do not. Um, but I mean, um, but you know what? I, then there's something about Halloween. There is a reason for that film. And I think that David Gordon Green and Daniel McBride were very smart in saying this is the sequel to the first Halloween. It gets rid of all the other stuff and you're able to tell a compelling story. There is a reason for that movie to exist. And I think a lot of the times there isn't a reason for sequels to exist. And I applaud that as a film goer to such a degree. I mean, one of the things that I, not that I don't know if it's happening anymore, but when I was working on Galaxy Quest, what was so challenging is to tell a story that needs to be told because it's so easy to rehash, redo, fan service, all this sort of stuff. And I think when you look at this list, one of the reasons why a lot of these movies are, you get a bunch of people in a room, they'd argue over these movies, is this you know, connection that people feel to it. There has become, and we talked about this a lot, a toxic fandom in a lot of these Films And, you know, I don't like that. And that's not my Laurie Strode. Although that didn't happen with Halloween, but it's definitely happened with Han Solo and it's happened with Venom. And, it, it, you know, it, it's 
people get very passionate about it. Yeah, the it. ownership over over franchises now. Yeah, is it, like super intense. Um, uh, and and, and I, I I've been like thinking a lot about like where that comes from. You know, like is it just a product of like message boards and internet culture building into Twitter, building into this idea that if we talk about your movie as much as you talked about it, making it, it's ours too. Well, I mean, and then you talk about this other thing where. Last Jedi perceived as being hated because these Russian bots are letting us think that we hate the Last Jedi. Russian bots, get off Ryan Johnson's back. The movie's good. Really good. <laughs> exactly. I mean, I would like to see more horror on the AFI list, but Halloween is gone. Um, and just uh, because I want to just torture with Chris McQuarrie, here's Chris McQuarrie talking a little bit about this idea of what you were talking about, toxic fandom and the internet kind of coming in. People are so busy defending their point of view that they're not really looking at the way they are defending it. And what, what we've done as a society is we're attacking logical problems with emotional responses. But that was interesting, a, a very interesting way to kind of distill this thing that constantly comes up, you know, this, this kind of, it, it's just how I feel, so I'm right. Well, I think that is also what might make talking about the most popular films of 2018 interesting in that we have to do this extra exhale when something is so talked about to make sure that we believe how we feel about it. Uh, to, to try to explain to what I'm saying, like like Wonder Woman. Mm-hmm. I thought Wonder Woman was fine. And last year when everybody's like, Wonder Woman should win an Oscar, I was sort of like, no. Right. Do you know what I mean? But I And as much as I respected Wonder Woman and, and what it tried to do, as much as I thought Patty Jenkins did a pretty good job with the film, as much as I loved seeing the camera watch her run and kick ass without ever being like, check out her ass. Right. The way that it does all the time to Scarlett Johansson in an Avengers movie. Right. It's still not an Oscar movie. It's just like a valuable, great movie. Well, it's but a movie that was- moves culture because I think it, it positions – uh, a female superhero in a way that we had yet to see it. And, you know, without that male gaze. But is it one of the best movies of all time? This is, it's a trickier conversation. It, you know, Exactly. And I think like that conversation, some it definitely needs a beat. Because I think if you had asked all the people the weekend that Wonder Woman comes out, does this movie deserve to go down in history? We'd have been like, yes. Oh my God, it's breaking all these records. And it's fantastic to see a female superhero movie. And it just, it takes a beat to be like, no. Where it's a finite list, you know, and I think we are starving for representation. Uh, and so whenever you see a culture, uh, a gender uh, represented, it's exciting because it's like, oh, thank God, because there's so many white male faces there that, you know, and I think it's, it can cloud judgment, I guess. Yeah, I mean, because think, I think what we all want is we want more of these. And so we're voting with our dollars to get more. Right. Wonder Woman's. I guess. Although yeah. I think we'd just like sort of more Patty Jenkins movies, maybe yeah. than like Wonder Woman specifically. Um, and we want it to get, we wanted Wonder Woman to get an Oscar just as though it would say something about, do we get more? But it's the more that's the point and not the Oscar and not the box office number, just the more. Yeah. But there's almost no other way to argue for the more without the evidence of why we want it. So if we're talking about this list, am I right in saying this is what we have left? Crazy Rich Asians, Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse, A Quiet Place. A Star is Born, Black Panther, and Infinity War. I don't know. Did we officially cross off Ant-Man and the Wasp and Venom? They're gone. Right, uh, they're we gone. didn't officially, but I think that they fall into that category of being fun popcorn films or, depending on your opinion, not fun popcorn films. But they are not films that I think are moving culture in any way. I mean, I think with Mary Poppins, as we say goodbye to it, yes. uh, the one positive thing I can say is if we are looking for 2018 relevance— it is about corrupt bankers. It is sort of about a housing crisis. They're right. getting kicked okay. out of their house. Well, can I ask you a question? 
that I don't know if I know the answer to. Yeah. Can you sequelize a character that's so connected to a performer? And I think we can go to Solo and talk about that as well. In watching Mary Poppins, it felt to me like a version of Julie Andrews. It didn't, it felt like, oh, it's not quite her, but it's kind of her. It doesn't allow the actor to kind of really embody the performance because they're trying to pay off what the fans want it to be. I don't know if you can sequelize a character when it's so tied to the actor. Yeah, I mean, only when it's good. Like, I, I realized that I kind of, when I was listing off how the, we had independent films in like the 80s and 90s, one of the things I said was Batman, which had been made before. But mm-hmm. I don't think we had seen Batman in that type of a movie form when it came out, when Tim Burton did the original right. one. I don't think we'd seen a Joker like that. Like, to me, Batman had such originality that it felt fresh. But Mary Poppins does not feel fresh in any sort of a way. It feels like fan service. And to be honest, I was just sort of mad that it existed because it felt like Disney basically made that whole other Mary Poppins movie, uh, Saving Mr. Banks. Yes. Basically to be like, she was a bitch. Now we get to really do the sequel. Now you're on our side. <laughs> Which, like, none of that was true, by the way. If you really look into the real woman who, P.L. Travers, who wrote Mary Poppins, she was not this, like, uptight British prig woman. She wore, like, giant kimonos everywhere, and she adopted a bunch of kids, and she was fascinating, and she did yoga really early. Like, they were basically like, you don't like her. She's an uptight, bossy woman. And now we're going to do our sequel. Don't you want it? And it was like, no, you get everything wrong, Disney, on this. <laughs> you, you. The, I think Mary Poppins Returns just proved her wrong, that Disney didn't deserve her character. But anyway. All right, so maybe let's talk about the two outliers first, for me. Um and I put Spider-Man on this list because I think Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse is the reverse of what we were talking about, kind of embracing what we talked about with Laurie Strode and uh, Halloween uh, 2018, which is here's a character we know, a character that you could argue has been rebooted so many times and done, I mean, ultimately last year, a brand new version of it came out, but they bring something so fresh and so new to the table. It's as if it's the first Spider-Man movie you've seen. And on top of that, putting forth this character of Miles Morales, who is a different face that we've seen. And I love what it's saying, which is anyone can be Spider-Man. It could be a woman. It could be uh, an older 40-year-old man. It could be a young kid in the city. It could be, you know... It could be a pig, you know, and and that to me, that feeling made me leave the theater like I was a kid. I, I haven't felt that much joy leaving a theater going like, I want I want to buy a Spider-Man costume. And I like Spider-Man. I didn't feel that way at Homecoming. I liked Homecoming a lot. But this movie connected to me on an emotional level. I was like, I just felt like it was worth the conversation. I think it is worth the conversation. I mean, we don't have that many animated movies on the AFI top list. We've got, like, Snow White. We've got a Toy Story. The animation and style in this alone I found just so strikingly beautiful. Yeah. Like, such an image of what we can do with movies that we don't really have on this list. A way of style, a way of look, a way of color, a way of of impact. Yeah. You know? I mean, this film gets crazy and colorful. It also gets very stark. It's beautiful. I think it's, like, beautifully made in terms of just, like, talking about craft. I love... Phil Lord's brain, you know, who like yeah. wrote the Spider-Man movie. I think like everything he writes is brilliant. And you know, I don't know if we live in a world where like 22 Jump Street, well, actually, no, we officially do not live in a world where 22 Jump Street would ever make the AFI list right. or 21 Jump Street or any of his jumps. But that's okay. But that's okay. But his brain is so great. I want him to do something that gets on this list someday because I think he's 100% capable of it. Well, 
to me, what I love about them is they take chances. Now we're talking about this film and where you have to acknowledge that he was one of the directors fired from Solo, a Star Wars story. And all the reports that you hear, and there's a lot of them, you could draw the line to say they are risk takers. They're trying to do things in a different way. And whether that's the Lego movie, whether that's 21 Jump Street, whether it's Spider-Verse, each one of them is taking something that is established or something that is known. And I want to use the term, I'll use the term retconning. It's, it's retconning what we know and making it into something that is a viable product. And uh, I think there is a real art to that, to go, what is the core thing here? What do we love about this thing? And how can we make this that people are seeing Spider-Man and going, I now like Spider-Man. Like he, he's taking something that's so uncultured. And I don't know, I, I'm very like excited by that film. And yeah, it, I think the only two people who do that well are Lorda Miller and Ryan Johnson. Yeah. I think they're the only two people who do what we need younger directors to do right now, which is look at a franchise. If you, if, if the franchise job is what you're going to be offered, mm-hmm. if nobody is giving you a gazillion dollars to do something wholly original from the bottom up, then the best artists who have to work within the system are basically like worms who tunnel into it, figure out how to like digest and spit it back out in their own form, which I think well, Johnson does really well and which absolutely. I think, I think uh, Lord does too. But that also means we'd, I ha- a little piece of my heart would have to open up into letting a superhero movie on this list, which it really doesn't want to. But the truth is, and we should probably just say this outright, at some point, I think we're going to have to put a superhero movie on the AFI list, if for nothing else, than to represent the fact that it has controlled our culture for 18 going on 20 years. But, and I find that depressing, but we can't just pretend it didn't happen. But wait a second. We, but how is that more depressing than a Western? Like, you know, the Western, you know, there's there's multiple Westerns on that. There, you know, there are multiple mafia films that have been made. You know, there are, are you know, stories. I think we're seeing a lot of repetitive films put on this list. Vietnam films, as an example. I think that it's not out of place for a superhero movie to be on this list. This is an interesting conversation because it is an animated film and it's a superhero film. Talking about the people who figure out how to work the system If you put Solo and Spider-Man next to each other, I think you see the two sides of the coin. I think you see, wow, this is what happens when you let someone reinvent. And this is what happens when you just color in the lines. And it's a good lesson to learn. And I think if I'm Kathleen Kennedy, I'm kicking myself for going like, you know what? I would have gotten a movie that may have come in 13 on the list, but been critically applauded. I mean, I think investing in imagination is the right thing to do for the long run health of the brand. Yeah. To be honest, not that I feel like as a critic, I should care about the long run health of a brand that I want to die. But if I did, but I would say me liking Alden Ehrenreich's solo, which I could have given right. like his performance in the Coen Brothers movie from a few years mm-hmm. ago. Like, I don't think he's an untalented actor. No. I think they like shoehorned him into playing a character that just doesn't really exist in a younger person's body. It didn't really fit. I would argue that the reasons why people love Solo, and I watch it with my goddaughter, and so I enjoyed my experience watching the film, but the things that I responded to the most were the stamps that Phil and Chris put on it, the casting, the some of the design aspects of it. Like Those are the things I'm like, oh, that's really cool. I would have liked to have seen what they did to that version. Amy, we talked a little bit about Kava at the top of the show. This is the remote that gets your remote clutter under control. We have too many remotes. No, wait, wait, wait. You said something really interesting in the pre-roll that I want to learn more about. 
This is a remote that you talk to? Yeah, okay, you plug in your streamer, your sound system, your cable, your satellite, even your game console, and Control Center will simplify your home theater so you can control everything connected to your TV with one easy-to-use remote control that has voice control. Voice control. I can't tell you how many mornings I wake up with my child who is now getting into YouTube videos, and he wants to watch this... kid who skateboards with his dad. Uh, his dad is Andrew Schrock, and the kid's name is Raiden. And every morning I'm typing in, Raiden goes to this. And how much easier would it be if I could just talk into remote? I don't have to mess with all of them. I don't have to waste time searching. I just say what I want to watch and do it. And when I'm up at six in the morning with my four-year-old, I don't want to be typing in anything. My contacts aren't in. I'm not happy. Uh, but all you need to do is say, like, watch Raiden. And it will come on, or or probably for you, uh, you know, maybe it's like, watch uh, A Star is Born, you know, something like that. And Cavo will just do the rest. Break out the popcorn and champagne, if you drink champagne, and Control Center will bring the joy back to your TV life. No more searching, no more finding. It's the easiest, best way to watch TV your way. And right now, you can get your Cavo for 40% off with the promo code UNSPOOLED. You know how to spell UNSPOOLED. It's U-N-S-P-O-O-L-E-D. That means that you get a Cavo controller for only $59.95. That's 40% off the regular pricing of $99.95. Control Center is available at Cavo, C-A-A-V-O.com and at Best Buy. And here's the best part. We have too many remotes. We need to simplify. It has voice automation. People... If you want to watch TV, there's so many things to binge. You don't have to know what platform it's on anymore. All you have to know is that you want to watch it, and Cavo will bring you there. there. It's Control Center by Cavo, one remote that does it all. And just like Gollum, I go, Ah, oh, my precious, my precious Cavo. Hey, you know what, Paul? There is an excellent new podcast on Earwolf. Our buddies here called The Supergroup that is now out for free. I love this show. It's hosted by Tawny Newsom, who people might remember from back in the day when we were doing our episode about, oh my God, what on earth? How is Fred Astaire wearing blackface? Yes. I love Tawny. She's the host of You as This Racist, but it's her and also Alex Kilnor, who people know from Second City. Love that. And what they're doing on the supergroup is every week they, they invite a comedian and a musician to collaborate on a song with them. People like Ted Leo. Ted Leo, who was amazing. Amazing. I love Ted Leo. And then you got Paul F. Tompkins. You got SNL's Zashir Zameda. You have everybody creating the musical hits. Stars are born on this show every week. It's a really cool show because... Uh, very similarly to Spontaneous Nation, they have someone come in who has a little bit of a musical background, and then they build a song around the personality of the person. So the song styles change, and the songs they produce are really, really good. Uh, I've been so impressed with it, and you never will guess who is really good, uh, maybe behind a drum kit or behind a, you know, a fretboard. Is that what they call it? The guitar, the old fretboard? Uh, anyway, uh, the, the show is hilarious. The songs are legit. Get ready for the Supergroup. Listen and subscribe to Supergroup now, wherever you get your podcasts. So you don't enjoy any superhero movies. Like you, you, there's not a single one that you enjoy. Well, for speaking about the emotional distance of needing space, like to be able to really see what stands you know, I got so bummed out looking at this top 20 list that I think I am really mad at them. I'm just mad at them for still being here. I'm mad at them for being our measuring stick of determining even the cultural change we are making as a society. I'm mad still that it's a Wonder Woman movie that gets us talking about feminism and not something else. I appreciate, though, the earthworming of the Wonder Woman myth to make us talk about feminism, which 
I guess, brings us to my favorite moment in Avengers Infinity War, which was when everybody died. I love that. <laughs> like, if they all stayed dead, I would be very happy. Amy, Amy. And, and I'm going to stand by that because, like, to me, the main problem of an, of an Avengers movie is that there are no stakes. Okay. Well, let, all right. Let's let's talk a little bit about Avengers, uh, the second highest grossing film of the year. This is the culmination of 18 years. It's a film that I argue is definitely handled by the Russos. I think balancing that many characters, uh, I don't even know how many they balanced, but they balanced a lot, and that many storylines, they did it in a way that I was a little apprehensive going in. I was like, how are they going to balance this? What is it going to be like? And I felt like they found the best elements of everybody else's recipe and then made a really delicious dinner. And I and that's not saying anything wrong about the Russos. I think the Russos are another kind of director like uh, Phil and Chris that are able to go, okay, how do we make this cool and fun and interesting? And I'll go back to what they did to Captain America. Like, I love what they did to Captain America. I love Winter Soldier. It feels like Parallax View to me. It feels like a 70s film, and they made that character cool. Uh, And then Civil War felt like the Avengers movie that I wanted. I like that more than the first two Avengers films. I thought it was way smarter and way more interesting. And then you get to this movie, which I think ultimately is a party sub. Is it going to be the best quality movie? Nope. Is it going to entertain everybody at the party? Fuck yeah. And they made the best. Are you best- happy when a nine foot sandwich shows up? It's not bad. You're excited. <laughs> and 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 I, and I say that with the most love because I fucking love this movie. I It was to me the culmination of everything that you would want to see that you never get to see. It's the cannonball run of superhero movies. Everyone's doing their stuff. It's great. You have this cool villain. Boom, boom, boom. And it flies by and I watch it again. I'm like, oh, it, it's fun. It's chunky. It's the pacing is good. They're not directors that I think elongate for no reason. I think a lot of these movies, there's a lot of fat in them. That movie, when you watch it, it clips along. And I think it's because they're TV directors. I think that they know how to shave it down where I have issue with it. And this is my issue for the AFI list. Is it a movie that you could put on for anyone in 40 years and be like, enjoy this movie? Absolutely not. They will have no idea what this is. This will be like watching a clip show. This is like if we watched an episode of The Gong Show and just suddenly discovered it was like on the list. We're like, what is this? Why are all these weirdo people in costume Uh, coming in and out? Well, but what I love about the film was they made a choice, which was, yeah, if you're not on board, we don't need to walk you in. This is not a movie for you. This is a, they just kind of flip the bird and like, fuck it. We're making this movie. You're either on or you're not. And I love that. I love that as a fan, I feel that's the best fan service you can do. It's like, yeah, I put in the time. Now pay it off. You don't have to be like, hi, I'm Iron Man. And now I feel like this. Oh, I'm happy. Yeah, not happy emotion. Happy John Favreau. Uh, but I mean, yeah. I do. I do think like if you allowed an Avengers Infinity War on the list, mm-hmm. what you would be doing is you would be saying, here are all of the actors who were alive in 2018 because they're all in this movie. And that's impressive. It I is. mean, to have a movie where it's like Downey Jr., Hemsworth, Ruffalo, Mackie, Elizabeth Olsen, Cumberbatch, Chris Evans, Dave Bautista, who I love, Karen Gilliam, Scarlett Johansson, Chris Pratt, I mean, Gwyneth Paltrow, I haven't even mentioned it, Benicio Del Toro, like Idris Elba, everybody is in this movie. It, I was on set for, I don't know if I'm even supposed to say it, but I was on set for this movie and to see the call sheet, I was like, what? 
the fuck? It, it, it was mind blowing. It's the most insane call sheet because normally when you go on set, you have a call sheet, the first two, three names, five names, you know, this one was like 27 people and everyone was a giant star. Um, that was, cr- it was cr- I mean, it's insane. It's like if you're going to take the cast of any film and just mm-hmm. put them in ice yeah. to like have them in the future. Yeah. Like the good ice, not the border ice. Um, <laughs> that that would have to be the movie. I mean, although yeah. it's like a tough competition because when you look at like most of the films at the top of the list, they basically just hired everybody. Like well, every every film now is such a gigantic event. Well, yes and no. I don't think that that's totally true for Black Panther. And I don't think. That it, like I think Black Panther has a lot of recognizable faces, but it's not the kind of faces that you're seeing in Aquaman. Well, May- I think I think Black Panther. It, look, let's talk about Black Panther. Yes, I think Black Panther. So is we going- agree that Avengers: Infinity War, while appropriate, while no issues, it does not. It doesn't fit the criteria of what we're talking about. Not even close. Okay. I mean, although when we open our hearts in the future to putting a superhero movie on the list. Mm-hmm. If we make a direct parallel to Star Wars, the first Star Wars is the only one on the list. If right. we talk about Lord of the Rings, the first one is the one on the list. Which, if you take that as a given, like, and you want to recognize Marvel, I hope that doesn't mean that, like, the first Avengers would be the one on the list. No, it would be Iron Man. a terrible Man. film. Iron Man is not that good. Um, Whoa, wow, Amy. Uh, Iron Man is the one that kicks off the entire 18-year run. Without Iron Man, there's nothing else. You should not put the first one on or the first Avengers on because it's not like Star Wars. It's not like Lord of the Rings. It's not telling a story. It is opening up a universe. So that allows us to talk about these movies individually. Are there some that are better than others? I don't know. I feel like I don't think we have to be in worry of that. I don't think that the A-list would put the first event. Oh, no, no, no. not the first. But I mean, that to me is the most interesting thing about then the entire Marvel franchise is that it would break all the rules of what we know would get onto the AFI list. And I respect that about it. Well, it's a genre. I think that Marvel is saying there's a million Western films. They're under one umbrella, if that makes sense. But do we need then in in the genre Western, we've Mm -hmm. got. The straightforward westerns, and we've got the subversive westerns. Mm-hmm. Would we need the same thing in superhero films? Yeah, absolutely. Would we need the cheerful Marvel movie and also, like, The Dark Knight? Because I could put The Dark Knight, uh, I don't know, I, like, I sound like I have a fedora on even saying that out loud, but, like, I would put The Dark Knight on this list probably of all the superhero films if you put a gun to my head. I don't want them on the list, but I'm realizing they have to be. Well, let's talk about this oh. next movie, which right, I think right. probably has the strongest chance of getting on the AFI list, Black Panther. Let's answer the questions about Black Panther with your questions. Ask them. Let's see. Is it visually outstanding? I think so, yes. I think the production design is spectacular. Mm -hmm. I think the camera work is a real mess, especially in the action scenes, especially at the end. What about the fight scenes, though? Like the ones in the waterfall, you think those are a mess? That one's okay. I think the train scene is really badly done. I wouldn't disagree with you. I think I'm overtaken by the emotion of what's going on there to focus on that. But I agree with you that that in a film full of very good sequences, that one is lackluster. I don't know if it was. Yeah, it's just a little bit weird. Yeah. I mean, to me, I think Black Panther is. I think it's going to become incredibly important for this cast. I kind of feel the same way about Crazy Rich Asians in that there's a bunch of names that maybe people had known around. Like, I, I've loved Chad- Chadwick Boseman for a long time. Everybody knows Lupita. Everybody knows Michael B. Jordan. Everybody knows Angela Bassett. But there's people in there like Letitia Wright. 
Yeah. Um, Denai Gurira, Winston Duke, I think, who are going to blow up so much bigger after this and that this movie kind of seeded them in the popular culture, I think right. is important, which is what I also really feel about Crazy Rich Asians. I'm like so grateful to us for like introducing us to Henry Golden. Oh, Golden, yeah. Who I think is like amazing. And, and Aquafina. Uh, when I was at Sundance right now, like Aquafina was in like 90 films. Like, I know. She's the new gigantic thing. And it's, I think that's a lot of Crazy Rich Asians. As of Asians, today, like, she's presenting at the Academy Awards. And just last year, we were together uh, starring in Future Man as she was uh, my coworker at the video game store. And it's amazing to watch what happens. Also, watching Constance Wu, who I worked with on Fresh Off the Boat for a couple of years, just rise up to this higher echelon where they're on the cover of Time magazine. They're presenting at the Oscars there. You know, they are the toast of the town. But I think let's talk about uh, Black Panther and Crazy Rich Asians as two sides of a coin, because I think they're both doing very similar things. It's about representation. It's about telling a story that we've tell all the time with different faces, with uh, in a mainstream way, not a whitewashed version of that in the sense that they're not trying to cut out the culture. I think that both Ryan Coogler and John Chu really lean in to the culture and are not afraid to have things that maybe everyone doesn't get, but you see that it works. And that's something I think, you know, as someone who's been on the end of getting notes and retooling things, like everyone's like, dumb it down, dumb it down, dumb it, you know, explain, overexplain. And both of these movies don't do that. They kind of just embrace. Yeah, I mean, I think they both were fun to watch. I think they both have an outsized importance in the culture, more so maybe than this craft of the films. Mm -hmm. When I think about Black Panther, I think about all the moments that super excite me. I think about Letitia Wright just showing up and me being like, oh, my God, and falling in love with her, like, straight away. Martin Freeman, the best part of the movie, right? Right? (laughs) Oh, my God. Yeah, the best part. (laughs) Everyone walks out of there going, Martin Freeman, when he did that stuff? (laughs) Oh, my God. I mean, I think of seeing, like, Winston Duke just show up and being like, who is that movie star? You know, well, I think of that. But then I also think about there's a moment in that movie in Black Panther that I feel like should have really, really, really resonated. And that's the moment where Chadwick Boseman is on the cliff with Michael B. Jordan towards the end. Yes. And I have to admit, and maybe I'm alone in this, I didn't feel the emotional beat that I I know I, I was supposed to feel and that I really wanted to feel. I just kind of felt like Ryan Coogler... I think he's a very capable director. I think he will grow into being a great director. I just felt like he was almost exhausted and like couldn't quite give it that twist that it needed. I just didn't think he was quite up to where the script wanted it to be. I agree with you. I was about to pull that clip for this podcast and I was like, oh, it doesn't really resonate the way that I remember it resonating. And then I looked around for other clips. And I was like, well, maybe this is the scene. And then I realized that it wasn't, about individual scenes. I think this is a film where, you know, the sum total is more than the parts, if that makes sense. Because I remember the emotion I feel, like when Killmonger comes to Wakanda and challenges him. And then when, you know, uh, when T'Challa loses, it's like, oh, like, but it's, there's not like a monologue. There's not a speech. I mean, Killmonger does have some great speeches. And I think it's a very complex villain. And it's a villain that you, as an audience member side with and and you see it and you don't want him to die, but it's not like, here's my, I could have been a contender scene. I mean, I do think that we live in a world where I would not be surprised if Black Panther 2 was better than Black Panther 1. Mm-hmm. 
even though we'd be missing out on Michael B. Jordan, which actually would be a big loss. Now, Not now that so listen. quickly, Amy. Oh. Oh, oh, okay. Yep. There's uh, a lot of talk in the Marvel Universe that Killmonger is coming back because of our friend Captain Marvel. Brie Larson has a lot of powers. We're talking about a world where maybe, I don't know, this is Paul making an assumption based on no knowledge. Maybe there's clones. Maybe we're going back to an alternate universe. Killmonger, I think, is in Black Panther 2. We don't know. People, this is all hearsay, not based on any fact. This is just me, the person who writes Marvel comic books on the side, thinking that that character is coming back. Okay. (laughs) I mean, it is weird, isn't it, that, like, Killmonger is basically the same thing as Patrick Wilson and Aquaman? That, like, I think, like, they kind of rewrote Aquaman's villain to be more like Killmonger, to be like, let's make him complex. Let's make him have a point. You know, and in Aquaman... You know, Patrick Wilson is like, I don't like these Americans and or these Earthlings. And I want to destroy them because they keep littering the ocean, which is a very valid point. <laughs> so funny that you say that. I didn't even get that from the movie. <laughs> it's 100% valid <laughs> I point. love it He's so much. He's like, I want to destroy the, the Earth dwellers, the land dwellers, right. because they are polluting the ocean. He is 100% correct in the same way that Killmonger is often very correct. Right. Uh, but Jason Momoa is not nearly up to the stance of being like, no, I like to punish the sea or whatever the hero's point of view yeah. is supposed to be on that. And well, what I like about Black Panther and versus Aquaman, and that's a very wide swath that we're cutting here, is I believe that T'Challa learns from Killmonger. He wanted to save him. He, It's not like everyone is black or white. It's There are shades of gray. Listen, let's just say it outright. Like, out of these top 20, Black Panther is maybe at the top of the list for what might make it on an AFI list. But I do wonder if we're going to regret that in a couple years. Like, well, if we're going to look at it and say it wasn't quite as good because part of the beauty of it is that it gave us better versions of what we liked about it. I think that any film should have a four-year sh- waiting period uh, before you can get on the AFI list. I think, it, like, at minimum. I mean, because who knows when this next list is coming out? Because— you're too close to it. I think we were too close to Wonder Woman. I think we're too close to Black Panther. Uh, we're still in Oscar season for Black Panther. I know we talked a little bit about Ryan Coogler. I want to just play you this one clip uh, about how much thought Ryan Coogler puts into a scene. This is from the Vanity Fair breaking down a scene. And this is, just listen to a second of it. It's the fight scene uh, when they're in the underground gambling casino. And just listen to the detail of what he's thinking about and everything. And it kind of blew me away. The mission's kind of spearheaded by Lupita Nyong'o here in this magnificent green dress uh, that, that our, our costume designer 3D printed, actually. A lot of African symbolism here, like Wakandan text, is drawn in, in lines and boxes as opposed to round shapes. At the same time, you know, you know, Lupita looks looks fierce and, 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 like, and like a warrior. Different hairstyle than you see her in, too. We had a big emphasis on, on Wakandans having natural hair. Um, and it's a lot of motifs um, about um, femininity, especially black femininity here in this scene. It's never. Yes, I just love that there was that much attention to detail and that much kind of respect to a culture that is fictional but based in African culture. And I just love that as this anatomy of a scene goes on, I'm just kind of blown away by every little choice was specific. And I really found that impressive for a superhero director to make a film that felt... Like, it wasn't just like, yeah, and then a CGI lizard pops out of the wall. You know, it was like, no, it was, everything was conscious. I, and I do kind of want to say, like, you know, we talk about Ryan Coogler a lot as one of, like, the main auteurs here and as somebody who I think 
is projected to make a lot of really interesting things later. He, his wife, by the way, Zinzi Evans, mm-hmm. I kind of think that she might be one of the unsung heroes we don't talk about. So I just really? want to like give her a shout out very fast. Okay. Um, Zinzi Evans, she's been dating him since they were in high school. They got married a few years ago. They've basically been like this partnership forever. And I think she seemed, from what I've heard about like their relationship, she seems like one of the one of the people in his life who's just always been there giving him her opinions, giving him her point of view, like helping him be shaped, right. helping him become the person he is. I would not be surprised at all if a lot of like the feminine power of Black Panther comes right. from her influence. And so I just wanted to like give her a shout out really fast. I love all. that. I think anyone in a uh, relationship who is creative hopefully is with somebody that is challenging them because – very rarely, I think, as you get more and more successful, do people tell you that that idea sucks and you need that person who's not afraid of, you know, not being invited to your project. I mean, this is, you know, we talked about Peter Bogdanovich and that relationship that he had. I will also say where you feel about superhero movies, I kind of feel about Crazy Rich Asians. Totally fun movie. Exciting to see this cast and what I love about that movie, which is what I love about Black Panther, which is what I even love about The Hangover is it introduces us to people that we are not totally inundated with. A movie where you don't know who Winston Duke is. And at the end, you're like, I have to IMDb him. Like, you know, and it's like, I don't know who Aquafina is. I don't know who Constance is. And, and like, and I love that feeling. And, and going about this list, very few films are like that on this list. And I think that that's one of the best experiences of seeing a film is going, who is that? It's true. And also, I want to also add this about Crazy Rich Asians. It's a romantic comedy. It's it's a romantic comedy on this top 20. It's the only one on Mm -hmm. this top 20, which I think is also really valuable. I think it's not only going to help us reboot, you know, I I think it's not only going to help like draw attention to this amazing crop of actors that it finds. I hope it's going to reboot this genre. And I, I would mean, like to see that. I mean, the fact that it alone is a romantic comedy outside of most of these superhero films. Besides that, the only other romance we have on this list is A Star is Born, which right. we should talk about. Yes, let's get into that. Okay, so A Star is Born. This is the fourth Star is Born. We got the Barbara Streisand one. We got the Judy Garland one. We got the Janet Gaynor one before that. Why is this story so interesting to retell four times? Four times. I mean... Is it like Spider-Man? Is it as good as Spider-Man? <laughs> I mean, I, th- I think it's like a very universal, lovely, wonderful story. You get a touch of the excitement of watching somebody become famous. You get the genuine romance. I think that most of the star is Borns is, I have not seen all of them, but they have like a real love between the two characters that feels like sincere. You know, they. I, I think that's one of the best parts about the star is born is like, I buy Lady Gaga and Bradley Cooper as a couple yes. completely. And I believe that she adores him. And I don't think we even get to see that many romantic movies where there feels like there is love love there, not just like movie love, not just like, we're married, I'll do anything for her. Right. There's like love in there. And you see it kind of get pulled apart and come back together. You see forgiveness in this movie, which I think is really rare. So that, yeah, you get like the makeover part. Everybody loves a makeover movie. Everybody loves watching her be a star. Everybody likes the complicated parts of loving somebody who's destructive for you, but is also giving you the best that he has. Mm-hmm. You know, like the, he's not an asshole. Bradley Cooper's not an asshole. The the earlier boyfriends are not assholes, but they do asshole things. And right. I think a lot of movies don't talk about that, the kind of complicated parts of love where you can be bad for somebody so bad that you do the ending. And right. yet and yet love them so much that you wish they could have worked out. And so I think the Stars Born is actually really good because I think that, that a Star is Born it figures out you were talking about like f- having an intention for the story. Right. I think there is a good intention here. I think like 
it's very well done about what it takes to make it in modern pop. And I think having Lady Gaga do that. Right. A Lady Gaga, a person who like wanted to be a piano kind of classical jazz star, remade herself into Meat Woman because it helped people notice her. Right. A, a woman who, when she talks to Bradley Cooper about her nose, I believe that Lady Gaga has felt that way. And and I find that really interesting as just sort of the dissection of a character, of, of a real person getting to make it in like a very visual industry. I like this movie a lot, honestly. Like I've seen it twice now and and, and what I think is really striking about it is, like, he's always showing you, like, the quiet parts around the interesting highlights of the scene, you know? He's not showing you, like, the greatest beat, beat, beat of all the major parts of their relationship always. He shows you little quiet bits underneath it, little tiny arguments. He shows you, uh, like, of strength, I guess. And so I just feel like it's a really confident debut. Like, it, there is no stars born on the AFI list, which I think is kind of surprising a little surprising yeah, for a film that's been redone four times absolutely. exactly and i would say this one is strong enough to be on it like if you're gonna be if you're gonna be like kind of capricious about the list right and be like i'll put the second one on you may as well just be like put the fourth one on well here's what i'll say about this movie i don't disagree with you i think that bradley cooper did a really amazing job as a first-time director captured this thing in a way that felt so real i mean the the concert footage scenes are really impressive. I think Lady Gaga does a, a great job as an actress. It's got great songs, got great performances. It's a good love story. I don't think there's anything in this movie that moves culture. I don't think there's anything in this movie that changes the game. I don't think there's anything in this movie besides it's a well-directed, well-acted story well-told. And that's and that's not it's not a dig. It just doesn't feel like in in what we've been talking about, it has one less check mark to its name because yeah, I'm in. I'm in. It was, you know, a little corny in parts, but I'm on board for it. I didn't realize that this movie was a little bit like uh the way Clint Eastwood approached Unforgiven. This is a movie that Bradley Cooper wanted to do for a long time and waited until he was in his forties to make it because he felt like he couldn't have the emotional gravitas to tell the story. And I think his performance here might be the best I've ever seen Bradley Cooper. As my wife commented, it he's the best you've he's ever looked. I mean, and it is amazing. Like there's not a scene that goes by that Bradley Cooper does not look hot. I say that. And I'm like, I totally agree. Like every scene. Really? Cause there's scenes in there. Like the first time they bone where I'm like, yeah. Oh, you know, his breath is really bad in that. Well, he's I mean, like his breath, his breath may be bad, but going for it. And I was like, she must really like him to like <laughs> make out with that guy who just passed out with drunk. Breath. I think he looked good. I think he always looks good uh, in that movie. Like, I, I don't know if it was the tan, the hair, everything, but there is just nothing to me that's ultimately pushing. And if we're talking about that, I want to edge into quiet place because a quiet place is a movie that I think out of all the films that we've talked about does arguably the most inventive, creative thing on this list. Oh, I don't know. I mean, I mean, I think Quiet Place has like, A, a really bad monster. I think the monster is just ridiculous. And every time it shows up, I'm like, okay. I think A Quiet Place is fine. And I'm glad that a lower budget horror film made it 15 on the list. I think that's great. I think it's interesting to see a film on there that reflects that some of the most interesting stuff happening in the movies right now is happening in horror. Right. That's great. I think it's not even the best horror film this year. Um, I think John Krasinski's character is so irritating in that movie. <laughs> I mean, the, the moment where they're just like, 
no, girl, you can't come walking with us. You're a girl. I'm taking boy. Like, like what's happening there? And, and I, if the movie had been about, like, a sexist dad, that'd be interesting. Like, but they <laughs> just sort of did a really random, weirdly sexist thing and then kind of moved on. I think it's great to represent that Emily Blunt is wonderful. She's also in Mary Poppins. She's also just wonderful. Um, she's in so many of the movies this year. So is Woody Harrelson, weirdly, in the top 20. I can watch Woody Harrelson in anything. I'm all in board <laughs> with this guy. Um, but I think the world could live without A Quiet Place, for well, sure. Well, here's what I'll say about A Quiet Place. I don't think it is the best movie of the year. But it does something that I think is interesting, which is in a in a year in which we are full of distractions, in which we are living in a world where everyone's on their phones, on their apps, it introduces silence. And seeing that film in the theater, that was an experience that I had never had. That people around you didn't want to make noise because it captured you. The sound design pulls you in and they do some interesting things. I think even when you go into the perspective of the daughter who's deaf, you kind of see her perspective of it and you see the whole world. I think that is worthy of conversation because it's doing something that no other film does. It's it's saying, here's a horror movie. We all know what the, the idea of horror is. Can we tell a story where we take out all the dialogue, all the exposition, and we just watch these people interact? Can we, can we boil it down to its essential and still make it as effective as everything else? I think there's something to be said for that. I mean, <laughs> you, you just made me quiet, uh, so you win. <laughs> <laughs> but again, I, I but I don't know if it goes on the list. I just applaud. It's not on the list. No, I okay. applaud. I applaud that though, and I think that's what we're kind of talking about here. You know, if we're if we really boil it down, you know, in my opinion, it's like Crazy Rich Asians, Black Panther, A Quiet Place, and Spider Man Universe are the four films that are doing something. Wholly unique. Bird Box is basically a quiet place with blindfolds. Well, yeah, but let's, but I mean, there's a difference why one is critically uh, reviled and the other one is a <laughs> huge commercial success. I mean, like, you know, one is the bad version. You can say, well, that's just a version of Die Hard. But yeah, but Die Hard is still, it's great. It doesn't take away that 10 people made fucking terrible ripoffs yeah. of it. I mean, I would say it'd be narrowing down this top 20 just to Black Panther Star is Born. Spider-Verse really? well, and can, Crazy Rich Asians. Can I ask you, though, why you feel that A Star is Born is worthy? Because what is it about that movie that we aren't already seeing and doing? In my, like, what is it that's different about it? I think romance. I think we need more romance. I think okay. this is a great romance. So you think of all time, this is one of the best romances that you've ever seen in the history of film. Okay, it's no Titanic. Um, I think if this story has been kicking around for 90 years now, Mm -hmm. almost nine, well, 80-ish, 80 years, it has a, it has a real pull. I I think it's very well done. I think if I, if I did have to put another ding against it, it would be that I don't think Bradley Cooper's character represents anything about music in 2018. I don't know who that analog is. Maybe, I think if his character was maybe more country, I would buy it. He'd have to lean more into country. I know. I, I feel like they were like toying with him being country. Like, is he like Chris Stapleton? I don't know. Because Chris Stapleton is kind of like the what I was thinking of. But let me ask you this, Amy. It's called The Star is Born. But it seems to be heavily focused on the man making the woman. And it's 
a very I don't know, message-wise. It's an interesting movie. It's like I don't think he makes her. I think he sets her up. I think he sees the genius in her in the okay. parking lot, gives her a microphone and says, show okay. people what you can do. But you don't think the movie is more focused on Bradley Cooper than it is Lady Gaga? You don't think that it's a called A Star is Born? So you would have figured the movie would be about that star where I feel like this movie is about Bradley Cooper. Like If you were to track the plot of that movie, it is Bradley Cooper's story with a little postscript. A little postscript. I think... Because even at the end, she's like singing his song. 55, 45. He sings her song too. But the end of the movie, the coda of the movie is not her song. She is singing the song that he wrote to her. Which, About her. Right. About but her. it's him saying bye-bye. Spoiler alert. <laughs> Killmonger does come back in Star is Born too. <laughs> I, mean, I don't know. I just I, like there's something interesting I like about this. Seeing them like get together as an intellectual okay. equal, I think that he really respects her her intelligence and genius in this. And I think she makes the choice not to be his backup piano girl forever. And I think that he. But was that ever that. on the table? Yeah, she's his backup piano girl for a while, and then like the British dude with no socks is like, "Be a star," and she's like, "Okay." And Riley <laughs> Cooper's like, "You first, don't wear socks," and he's like, "This the is the first bad. time she comes out on that stage. It's on YouTube." And Andrew Dice Clay who gives a great performance in that film with his bunch of chauffeur friends loving that room. It reminded me very much of uh, Silver Lining Playbook. It had that same kind of like Robert De Niro and friends. Uh, but like the first night she goes out, she becomes a viral sensation. Like that man, like, there should have been 15 managers there the next night being like, ah, can we sign you? Because like, like, like a little bit, that was the thing that was weird. Like she literally is an overnight success to a certain degree. Everyone's like, do you see the video? You see the video? Anyway. All right. So, <laughs> all right. So out of this list, Amy, uh, I'm going to make you make a choice. Well, at the end the episode three, we'll make our final pick. But if we're leaving our top 20 of the box office hits, pick your movie that you're going to put in your satchel and walk off with. Ugh. <sighs> I mean, I feel like the obvious answer has to be a Black Panther because it's number one mm -hmm. and because it was the conversation of 2018 mm -hmm. and because it does, I do think it does change the culture. I do think that it will become this touchstone. I do think, however, it doesn't quite stand alone. It's okay. It stands alone okay. Mm -hmm. It's not, it's not great. I think point for point, like all around craft, all around everything, I think it is not as strong of a film as A Star is Born, but I do understand you like taking off points for A Star is Born for just being so repetitive. I, um, in a way, you've made a compelling argument for Spider-Man Spider-Verse, honestly. Like, I, I think That's that, that film where is... where I'm leaning. I came in strong on Black Panther, and as yeah. you were talking, I was like, hmm, I believe that they're going to make more movies. I don't know if I want to tack that one up on the wall just yet for Black Panther, because maybe Black Panther 2 is going to be better. I'm leaning towards Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse because... It's doing a couple things here, and this is kind of going back to what I talked about with The Quiet Place. It's reinventing the form. The animation in that is very interesting. It, it feels like something I hadn't seen before. I think it's embracing comics and adaptation in a way that we hadn't seen, because like, it looked like panels of a comic book. I think it's showing representation. I think it's showing inclusion. I think it is telling a superhero story and retelling the most important part of the superhero story, which is... It can be any of us. We are all heroes. And that's really what I think the core of the superhero story is, where the Western is telling us uh, a moral tale. It's a morality play set in the Old West. This is saying 
we all have the opportunity every day to make a difference. Do we do it? And there's something wonderful about that. There's something timeless about that. I think when you look at all those different characters in there, it's really interesting and representative of a culture. And if we're talking about animated films, I know Snow White is on that list, but this is something that I I would, I'm pushing it forward to episode three to talk about again. Yeah, I mean, to be fair, I think that's a really strong argument. The one thing that I can't do mentally is I can't undo what I know about Spider-Man. Like, I don't know if I was somebody who knew nothing about this origin myth. Would right. I get anything out of this film? Katy Perry did. Katy Perry had never seen a Star Wars. Or a she never saw she Spider-Man before, and then she saw this, and she's like, now I'm a fan. I mean, I've heard that like, <laughs> there were children crying in the theater because they were confused and didn't know what was happening. Really? Yeah. Well, I think you have to bring—I don't think this is a kid's movie. That's the other problem with it. I think this is like a 12-year-old movie. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's mind-bending. It is a aggressive film in style and tone. The same audience that likes to go see Moana is not going to get this. I didn't bring my son to this because I'm like, I'm not going to get that. I'll show him the trailer on my Apple TV because that's exactly what he wants to see, Spider-Man swinging. But he doesn't get all the internal stuff that's going on, the idea that the uncle is just a bad guy, but he's really not a bad guy. He's just kind of... You know, there's a lot of stuff there. It's an adult movie. And I think that's the sign of a great animated film. It's like when adults can walk out. I walk out as a 40-year-old man and go, oh, shit, I want to be Spider-Man right now. Okay, you know what? I'm crossing off a Star is Born uh, because if we don't have the romance movies I like in there that I think are better, Star is Born does not get in. And I guess I'm going to cross off Crazy Rich Agents. I think even Aquafina was in a better movie at Sundance than this, maybe, which uh, will be interesting. It's called The Farewell. It's, It's good. I actually probably enjoyed Crazy Rich Asians more, but Farewell is good. Farewell is, like, very good. And so I'm excited for people to see it. Okay, so I guess we're bringing forward Black Panther and Spider-Man. And I think, you know, when we look at Crazy Rich Asians or Star is Born or Black Panther, any of these movies we just talked about, these are important cultural films. Like, absolutely. And hopefully they're the films that open up the door to more films like this. You know, so when we look at this list, and two years or next year, it's going to be more films that feel this diverse. And so in the grand scheme of things, Black Panther does something that no movie did before. It like, you know, embraces Afrofuturism. It tells a story that is about a proud culture. It's not just going for laughs. It shows a strong superhero. It shows images that you've never seen. Crazy Rich Asians does a similar thing. It tells a romantic story showing, you know, this culture, this in a way that is sexy and funny and cool. And so you can't argue like the the dent it has on society, but at the same respect, they're just good movies. Are they the best movies ever made? No, they don't have to be. And I think that that's what we have to get back to is like, let's just make more diverse, interesting movies. Not every movie has to be held to the standard. I think uh, when Sex and the City came out, you know, it's like, oh, women will go see a movie. It's like, yeah, but they don't all have to be the best ever made. They can just be good. God knows, as a white man, I've seen so many mediocre but good films. Like, they don't have to be great. They just have to be enjoyable and more and more and more. If there are five crazy rich Asians next year, they don't have to be the best. It's like, I love, I can't wait for Hobbs and Shaw. It will never go on this list, uh, you know. But that doesn't mean that there's anything wrong with that. You know, I think there's a, there's a, it's okay to just have a great, fun movie that's inclusive and representative And it doesn't have to be more than that. So, Amy, that's what we're bringing into week three. But next week, when we go into the independent films, we decided we would use the website Metacritic and pick from the top 
20 films on Metacritic. Now, what we are doing is eliminating the foreign films, uh, films like Roma, uh, films like Cold War, uh, and Shoplifters, and just looking at the American-made films, because we are talking about the AFI, and I thought it might be interesting if we each picked a movie that we would tell the audience that we're going to maybe focus on next week for that list. Oh, well, then I'm going to say Sorry to Bother You. I love that film, and also The Favorite. I have to just, I'm, I'm going to say those two. Uh, I will agree with The Favorite, and I'm glad you already picked it. I just saw it last week in the theater, and it was wonderful. And I... Uh, would like to talk next week a little bit about Annihilation. So those are two films that we'll be talking out of the 20. So you can watch them uh, in the meantime. And we'll be talking about them, but as we did today, talk about a lot of films. Uh, but I think that's what I would tell you to watch for me, Annihilation, and sorry to bother you. Uh, and if you can get out to see The Favorite, more power to you. Amy, have I convinced you about the Cavo remote yet? I know we've talked a lot about a bunch of different movies. You want to probably go home tonight, watch Black Panther again, uh, or maybe not. <laughs> no, you have, because I have realized in, in learning about the Cavo, Cavo rhymes with condo. If I'm trying to simplify my house yes. Marie Kondo style and I want one remote instead of many, 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 many yes. remotes that are all wedged under my couch, I'm going to have to go to Cavo.com. C-A-A-V-O dot com, and I'm going to type in that promo code UNSPOOLED to get the 40% off discount. That's $59.95 off of $99.95. And let me tell you something, people. We need simplification in our lives. Cavo, you can take that Mary Kondo uh, rhyme if you'd like. I think it will work for you. Get a control center by Cavo, one remote that does it all. And remember, when you visit the site, you support the show, and that's always so important to us. See you next week. Bye-bye. Hey, this is Arnie Niekamp from the Improv Fantasy Podcast, Hello from the Magic Tavern. I fell through a dimensional portal behind a Burger King in Chicago into the magical land of Foon, and I started a podcast. Season three has just begun with a brand new adventure to defeat the Dark Lord. If you're a new listener or you've fallen behind, season three is a great jumping on point. And we've got great guests like Justin McElroy. I sound like a fancy college professor. Fake nuts. <laughs> Rachel Bloom. You all see my collection of men corpses and one woman. Felicia Day and Colton Dunn. You've seen <coughs> me have intercourse with a variety of species. It's a bummer. Andy Daly. You have the members of Genesis listed, but Phil Collins yeah. has crossed out and then circled and crossed out again. Ah, uh, yes. I have killed Phil Collins twice. Thomas Middleditch. <laughs> oh, Jesus. I mean, Jazos. <laughs> Ruler of the Eighth Circle. And that's just the beginning. Season three of Hello from the Magic Tavern is out now. Listen in Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, (laughs) That's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. 